This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRE's news director. Thanks for listening. I'm grateful for your company. Stay tuned as WMRE's Marguerite Gallerini reports on a summit in Charlottesville last week trying to address the teacher shortage in Virginia. We'll find out what they proposed. But we'll also dip into the archives for an in-depth report that Marguerite produced on the issue from last December. Also, she has a preview of this week's big Virginia Film Festival in Charlottesville. We also have a Virginia Public Radio report on a study from my alma mater, the Journalism School at UNC Chapel Hill, on news deserts in Virginia, the increasing number of areas in the Commonwealth without a daily or even weekly local newspaper. And we get up to speed on politics in Virginia with Jeff Shapiro. But first, let's get up to speed on Virginia's teacher shortage. Some experts say it's a crisis, and not only is there a downward trend in enrollment in teaching curriculums overall, but the lack of African Americans in that field is even more alarming at a time when diversity in classrooms is so important. WMRE's Marguerite Gallerini produced this report last December. Crowded classrooms and less one-on-one attention for students, overworked teachers who also have to serve as social workers and psychologists, plus mountains of paperwork. The situation in Virginia schools has gotten worse. I think we're approaching what we would call crisis proportions. Stephen Staples is the state superintendent of public instruction at the Virginia Department of Education. As of last year, there were over 1,000 vacant positions in October of the school year when obviously students were already back in school. So that's a pretty serious problem, I think, for all school divisions. Mathematics, special education, and science are the areas with the most need. But the problem is reaching across the entire curriculum spectrum. That includes teaching jobs in elementary schools, which used to be the easier positions to fill. Part of the problem is a shrinking pool of teaching students in the pipeline. To make problems worse, since 2008, there's been a drop of 30% in the number of college students enrolling in teacher preparation programs in the Commonwealth. That's Jim Livingston, president of the Virginia Education Association. What's happening is our teacher pipeline is literally drying up at a time when we are seeing a spike in uh, retirements. Everyone agrees on a number of factors. There is pay. Currently, at the end of last year, Virginia now ranks 32nd in average teacher salary, almost $8,000 behind the national average. There is the cost of training. Many uh, universities ended up moving to a five-year program where students would need to stay to get a master's in order to get licensed, not what had previously been an undergraduate. And what we're hearing from some colleges and universities is that kids were willing to stay and get a four-year degree and come out and teach, but that fifth year was costly, and they thought that impacted it. Also, the profession has lost respect over the years. I can talk with older mentors in the community who can tell me stories about when they were growing up, teachers were kind of on the same level as doctors and lawyers, and now teaching doesn't get that same respect. That's Tamara Diaz. A former Spanish teacher, she is now the executive director of African American Teaching Fellows, an organization in Charlottesville working to develop and retain African American teachers to support the schools in Albemarle County and Charlottesville City. She mentions another factor, the high test requirements to become a teacher in Virginia. I've had colleagues that wanted to be teachers and are now teachers in North Carolina or they're teachers in Maryland because of one test or one score. I also have teachers who I'm friends with in Virginia who took a test four times. And so you're thinking about paying a hundred plus dollars four times just to become a teacher in a field where you already don't make a lot of money. So 
House Delegate David Toscano says he is well aware of the issue. In this next budget, I think the governor will have more money for teachers, and I'm going to be fully supportive of that. And we'll try to be working on some new regulations that will make it easier for teachers to want to stay in the profession. We can pass some laws to do that, and we can pass some budgetary amendments that will change the, the salary schedule for teachers. But there's something else. Parallel to the general trend, African-American students are even less likely to enroll in teacher preparation programs. I have other students who would say, I'm a first-generation college student, and I have to make it, and I have to be able to come back and help my family. I can't help my family on a teaching salary. According to the Virginia Department of Education, nearly half of students in public Virginia schools are minority students, while only 16 percent of teachers are non-white. In Albemarle County, a third of the student body is non-white, but only 8 percent of their teachers are non-white. And Diaz says that's important. For the nation to be so diverse, for this to be such a diverse community, and to have students say that I've never had a teacher who looks like me, that is impactful. So what can be done? Statewide measures could encourage more student teachers, whether it be in the form of grants, by taking down some barriers to licensure through loan forgiveness, or reverting to an undergraduate degree. I think you'll see some of those percolating through policy decisions either on the General Assembly side or the State Board of Education side over the next few months. As for teachers of color, the Virginia Department of Education partnered with the Virginia Education Association to set up a Virginia Minority Educator Recruitment Summit back in February. Another one is planned for the spring. We actually offered six of our fellows a chance. We took them down to Richmond for the Teachers of Color Summit. A lot of our fellows, because we're still trying to increase diversity, they are the only or they're one of two or three teachers of color or African-American teachers in their schools. So for them to attend a professional conference where they could meet other teachers of color was a great opportunity. They kind of got to see role models because they saw people who were in their 40s, 50s, 60s and in education. So for them, they could see this is what I could do in 15 years or 20 years. Here's how I could still impact education. On Tuesday, a day-long summit at the University of Virginia gathered education leaders, policymakers, and researchers to discuss teacher retention. The Office of the Secretary of Education hosted the summit, and Marguerite was there. Here's the Virginia Superintendent of Public Instruction, Dr. James Lane, laying out the issue. I heard that there were about 1,200 teacher vacancies when we started the school year. 90,000 of our 1.2 million students in the Commonwealth are potentially impacted by the teacher shortage. So how can we retain teachers? One way is better teacher pay. Virginia still lags behind the U.S. average by $8,000. But it's not just that, says Dr. Jeffrey Smith, president of the Virginia Association of School Superintendents. The other piece that I have heard as superintendent, and I know my colleagues have heard it as well, is uh, greater and more autonomy within the classroom so that teachers can teach and young people can indeed learn. But I think also another area where we need some help and assistance, and that's when we look at the licensure program. Greater flexibility in converting the provisional license to that of the collegiate license in the teaching profession. Virginia did take a first step this year with House Bill 1125, signed into law in June, which makes it easier for out-of-state teachers to get licensed reciprocity in Virginia. But at the end of the day, the main problem often goes back to money. In the words of Jim Livingston, president of the Virginia Education Association, We have to put our money where our mouth is. For WMRA News, I'm Marguerite Gallerini.
The last decade has seen a dramatic reduction in local newspapers across Virginia, a decline that's documented in a new report outlining news deserts. Virginia Public Radio's Michael Pope has the story. Cumberland County has about 20,000 people, governed by a board of supervisors, a school board, a commonwealth's attorney, but no local newspaper. It's one of seven news deserts in Virginia, according to a new report from the University of North Carolina. I think the surprising thing to me is how dramatic the loss has been in terms of weeklies. That's Penelope Muse Abernathy, the night chair in journalism who directed the study. It shows that Virginia has lost 43 weekly newspapers since 2004. We've got to find something in whatever form it's delivered in, whether it's digitally or in print, that continues that community building function because that's what gives us both social cohesion, encourages political participation, and a whole range of things. Kelly McBride at the Pointer Institute, a journalism training center, predicted that this situation is going to get worse before it gets better. The newspapers that exist now are going to shrink the geographic footprint of what they cover because they don't have the staff resources, and frankly, it doesn't pay to deliver the paper two counties over. The study points out that online news outlets and nonprofit organizations are trying to fill the void, but they're subject to the same economic forces that are killing local newspapers across the country. I'm Michael Pope. This year's Virginia Film Festival, starting Thursday, is expanding the scope of its film selection. Marguerite has this preview. The 31st Virginia Film Festival showcases more than 150 films in four days, special guests, free events, and parties. It can be hard to know where to start. So let's take it from the beginning. 2018 marks exactly 50 years since 1968, and the social landscape is again shifting now, just as it did 50 years ago. So the festival will open its film lineup on November 1st with the docu-series 1968, The Year That Changed America. I hope to restore respect to the presidency. And on the theme of change in social movements, the festival will shine a spotlight on important issues of our time, such as race in America. In this category, the two-hour feature simply called Charlottesville provides an in-depth reading of the town in the wake of August 12th last year, from racial divides to local government mistakes. It is disheartening to see Charlottesville be pegged as this one attack and this one weekend. The screening will precede a community address by guest speaker Martin Luther King III, followed by a discussion moderated by Larry Sabato from the UVA Center for Politics. Beyond Charlottesville, the festival's spotlight on Virginia filmmaking celebrates movies and short films from around the state on a variety of issues, such as dementia. It's hard. Your whole life changes in an instant when you hear those words that, you know, you have Alzheimer's disease. Close to 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's and the number is projected to rise to 14 million by 2050. The documentary Revolutionizing Dementia Care, supported by the Richmond-based Community Idea Stations, explores dementia awareness. A lot of mentoring is helping people to understand, no, you can't do all the things you did do. But you still can do a lot. You still have a lot to be thankful for. The film will premiere at the festival on November 1st at the Violet Crown Theatre and will be followed the next day by a related workshop in Richmond for care partners to share new and best practices for people living with dementia in the U.S. And if you can make it to the festival, the film will air on various PBS stations on November 15. 
The festival will also focus on the struggles of the LGBTQ community everywhere. In the Kenyan film Rafiki, which means friend in Swahili, Kenna is the daughter of a local politician and always hangs out with the guys, but Kenna will make her first female friend when Ziki, the daughter of her father's political rival, moves to town. But when the two girls' relationship develops into romance, they must defend themselves against Kenya's anti-gay laws. Let's make a pact that we will never be like any of them down there. Instead, we're gonna be something real. Yes, something real. The festival also features a whole section entitled Middle Eastern and South Asian Sidebar. The light-hearted movie Hell in India will be introduced by guest speaker Samita Sunya, who's the assistant professor of cinema at UVA's Department of Middle Eastern and South Asian Languages and Culture. In this Egyptian comedy, a misunderstanding propels a band of musicians to India as a special forces squad to free the Egyptian ambassador and his family kidnapped by an evil billionaire. The festival definitely has something for everyone. Local, national and international movies, comedies, classics, documentaries, drama and more experimental films. Many guest speakers are set to make an appearance, including actor Christoph Waltz. There will be discussion panels and visitors can even catch a glimpse into immersive film technologies with the Virtual Reality Lab. I just want to know what he represents. Last but not least, the festival features four films in tribute to director Orson Welles, including his unfinished last movie, The Other Side of the Wind, which has finally been completed after decades of speculation. Is that what this movie is about? A Netflix documentary mixing archival footage and contemporary interviews also chronicles the somewhat cursed making of this movie and the director's maddening and tragic end. Its title? They'll love me when I'm dead. For WMRA News, I'm Marguerite Gallerini. And, of course, we've got that story posted on our website with uh, links that you can learn more about the festival. And full disclosure, the Virginia Film Festival underwrites programs on WMRA. Let's wrap up the show now with a look at Virginia politics from Jeff Shapiro of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, talking with WCV's Craig Carper in Richmond. Jeff, Democratic Attorney General Mark Herring announced the investigation of sexual abuse in Virginia's two Catholic dioceses. This is a big headline locally, but let's put it in perspective. Mark Herring, a Democrat, is not the first state attorney general to announce such an investigation. Investigations are underway in more than a dozen states, as well as the District of Columbia. However, Herring's announcement follows what may be the biggest investigation. Of course, that would be in Pennsylvania. Grand jury there uncovered decades of abuse by priests, as well as a cover-up of this abuse by the church. At his news conference the other day, the attorney general said he had read that grand jury report and was revolted by it. This is another big headline for the attorney general, who, as you no doubt recall, uh, passed on a run for governor in 2017, deferring to his Senate desk mate, former Senate desk mate, Ralph Northam. However, Herring may have his eye on the governorship now in 2021. It could be a very crowded field. Uh, Justin Fairfax, the lieutenant governor, certainly interested. Uh, LeVar Stoney, the mayor of Richmond. Uh, I guess there's a possibility as well. We may see Tom Periello back in the mix. He, of course, was defeated by the governor in the 2017 Democratic primary. One should note that this is not the first high-profile splash 
for our low-key attorney general. You'll remember early in his first term, he indicated that he would not defend the state's ban on same-sex marriage. He not only came out against it, having supported it as a uh, legislator, but as attorney general argued that it should be overturned in the federal courts, and of course it was. Republican Senate candidate Corey Stewart is getting in the TV ad game just two weeks before the election. He's on the air with a commercial vowing to take a tough line on immigration to support President Donald Trump in stopping, quote, the illegal alien invasion. Sounds truly terrifying indeed. Stewart is booking about $400,000 worth of TV time. That's not a lot. It is a sliver of the million spent so far by Senate Democratic incumbent Tim Kaine. The Stewart emphasis on immigration reflects uh, the Republican efforts across the country to energize the party's conservative base, much as Democratic candidates are emphasizing health care. By the way, Kaine has been really focusing on the nuts and bolts of uh, voter mobilization at at this point in the campaign. He has a get-out-the-vote program uh, in place. He is closely coordinating with the congressional candidates, in particular the four who could flip Republican-held seats. That would be Abigail Spanberger, Elaine Luria in Hampton Roads, Spanberger, of course, here in the Richmond area, Jennifer Wexton in Northern Virginia, and Leslie Coburn on the eastern side of the Blue Ridge through phones and door knocks and volunteer-to-voter contacts. Kane is hoping to drive the turnout this year past 2017. That was 47 percent. That made for the Northern-led Democratic landslide and, of course, that stunning 15-seat pickup in the House of Delegates. An uptick this year might make for some surprises at the congressional level. And another sign this may not be another low turnout midterm election, early absentee voting statewide has surpassed that for 2014 by at least 3,000 people. The State Board of Elections indicates that it is confident that uh, that upward spike will continue. This pattern is playing out in Virginia as it is nationally. One would note that in Chesterfield County here in the Richmond area, of course, that could be the make or break jurisdiction in that closely watched Dave Bratt, Abigail Stanberger congressional race. The general registrar there indicates that more than 6,000 absentee ballots have already been cast. Constance Tyler says she would not be surprised if the rate hit 10,000, if not 12,000 in Chesterfield. And of course, this as a local trend, is widely viewed as a measure of democratic enthusiasm, not just in this area, but across the state and nationally. Fallout over what some say is excessive spending in Hurricane Florence prep continues at the General Assembly. Yes, there was a state report, uh, this was pointed out by Times-Dispatch reporter Graham Muma, that last year said it would be unwise, that was the report's word, to do what was done this year in the run-up to Hurricane Florence. That was spend a lot of taxpayer money, in this instance $31 million, to open extra emergency shelters. These shelters were open to five days before the path of Florence could be better determined. The Northern administration is taking a lot of heat from Republican legislators about this. The allegation, the charge, the claim is that the state paid too much to a Texas company to set up and equip these shelters at three universities. They would uh, be housing and feeding 6,000 people for up to a week. And of course, this was all part and parcel of the mandatory evacuation order issued 
issued by the governor that applied to the Tidewater region. Of course, the storm missed Virginia, and it turns out that only 52 people used these shelters. They were at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg. A third at VCU here in Richmond was set up but not open. Now, the governor's office, again, says that it did this because it was taking no chances, but the Republicans say that there is really no way the administration can defend this steep bill. P.S. The administration is now delaying payment of that bill because of uh, certain questions, certain concerns. And the medical marijuana industry appears to be gearing up for another big push in the 2019 General Assembly. And industry lobbyists have formed a new trade group. Yes, it is called Cannabis VA. And I guess if cattlemen have a trade group and manufacturers have a trade group and IT businesses have a trade group, there's no reason why the cannabis industry shouldn't have a trade group. It's been set up to promote, and doesn't this sound business-like, to promote favorable and responsible business environment for pharma-related cannabis activities (laughs) in Virginia. There was a rollout of this group. It's the the creation of a lobbying firm here in town. There were about 100 people in attendance, and many of them were the lobbyists who see this as a big moneymaker and not just for this nascent cannabis industry. Thanks to Jeff Shapiro, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Have a great weekend. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible, is provided by Bib and Dolly Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Dan and Jim Huggins, and Anonymous Donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg in Rockingham County. You'll find all our stories archived at WMRA.org. To support local news on WMRA, go to that website, mouse over news, then click on news and information fun, and get a daily local news update on your smartphone every weekday morning. Subscribe to our news podcast, the WMRA Daily. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director and morning edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.